Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Anish Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join in, you can email your questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, it's a conversation about screening for lung cancer with Dr. Frank Detterbeck. Dr. Detterbeck is Professor of Thoracic Surgery, Chief of Thoracic Surgery, and Surgical Director for Thoracic Oncology at Yale School of Medicine. Here's Dr. Anish Chagpar. So, Frank, I remember it was a couple of years ago, you and I sat down on the radio and we were talking about lung cancer screening. Remind our listeners about where the state of the art is right now in terms of screening for what I think is one of the most deadliest cancers. Is that right? It certainly is. So I think one of the things that people don't realize is that lung cancer causes as many deaths as the next four leading causes of cancer deaths combined. Wow. it's a major cause of cancer deaths in both men and women and a big issue. So screening. Yeah. Uh, you know, because it is such a major cause of cancer deaths, you know, one of the things that has been on the table for a long time is can we diagnose it earlier? Can we save lives by doing that? And so there has been interest in that for decades. There has not been anything that really worked as a screening test up until 2010, 2011, when a big trial done in the United States, the National Lung Screening Trial, the results became available and showed that we could, in fact, save lives by screening people in the right way for lung cancer. So let's talk a little bit about that, because I think one of the things that our listeners have really gotten over the last several years that we've been doing this show is that finding cancers late is problematic. That's when people die. If you find cancers early, whether it's a colon cancer, a breast cancer, a prostate cancer, a lung cancer, actually people can do pretty well. And so screening is important. But do you screen everybody or do you just screen some people? Because screening has to be cost effective in, you know, the current healthcare scenario. Well, uh, so certainly I agree. But, you know, even aside from the cost issues, and we can talk about those, but even aside from that, I think we have to screen where we can make a difference, where we can actually save lives, and not screen where it really isn't going to make a difference. And so we have to recognize that, you know, although we have good data now that screening can save lives, it doesn't mean, unfortunately, that we can detect every lung cancer early, that we can save every life from lung cancer. You know, we have to accept that fact that, you know, there are limitations to screening. So, you know, we have to screen people that are at relatively high risk of developing lung cancer. To take it to an extreme, would you screen your 10-year-old daughter for lung cancer? The answer is obvious, no. You'd say, well, why would I 
give radiation or whatever to somebody who's really not at risk. And so when you take it to extremes, I think it becomes obvious for everybody. So we have to screen the right people to, to make a difference. So who are the right people to screen and how do we screen them? Well, I think that, uh, you know, to get back where we started from, things have evolved somewhat since the last time we talked. So when we talked a few years ago, the data had just come out. The NLST was uh, ages 55 to 74, people that had smoked for at least 30 pack years. That is a pack a year for 30 years or two packs a year for 15 years and had quit less than 15 years ago. So those were the criteria in the NLST. And those are basically still the criteria for which screening is approved. So CMS has approved, that's the Centers for uh, what is Medicare, CMS? And Medicaid. Medicare and Medicaid Services. Yeah. So they have approved screening um, for that population, slight modification in the age, upper age limit. Um, but I think we've evolved since then. Uh, there are other factors that are risk factors for lung cancer. We have a somewhat better understanding of that. Uh, there are risk models that have been developed to try to predict what the risk is of developing lung cancer in people that perhaps don't fit those criteria but still have high risk. And I think that we're gradually evolving to understanding these risk models well enough to start to use those to select the right people to screen. So so tell us more about those risk factors and those risk models, because, you know, there isn't a day that goes by that you'll hear somebody say, you know, my cousin, my sister, my neighbor, my friend got lung cancer, but never smoked a day in her life. And so those people would certainly not meet those criteria. Um, so what are the modifying factors, the other risk factors that now are um, being available to people who who might really need to be screened what are those risk factors well so smoking is clearly a risk factor for lung cancer that i think everybody knows there are nuances of that so the 30 pack years and having quit less than 15 years ago and so forth that's sort of a broad sweep and mm -hmm. uh, you know we can take that down a little bit more um, as people get older you know, they develop more cancers and they have a higher risk of lung cancer. So age plays a role and, and factoring in the smoking and the age a little bit better is important. Family history is important. Mm -hmm. If you have a first degree relative that has had a lung cancer, you are at higher risk of developing lung cancer regardless of any exposure to smoking. Hmm. You know, people have thought, well, that's just because you were exposed to smoking with your parents or whatever. Corrected for smoking exposure, you have a higher risk. Even non-smokers have a higher risk. Hmm. So I think those are probably the biggest factors. There are kind of a few others, but those are the bigger ones. Now, to get to another part of your question, though, what do we do about the non-smokers? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a misconception that only smokers get lung cancer. Clearly, non-smokers do get lung cancer, um, and we don't have as complete of an understanding of that as what we need. And I think that in the past, you know, we were only able to look at lung cancers as one big group, 
It's like looking at the whole forest. Mm -hmm. And we couldn't necessarily tell what makes one tree or another tree develop quite as well because we were only looking at the forest. Well, now we can do you know, genetic fingerprinting of tumors and see that there are different mutations that have caused different tumors to develop and to grow. And so it's like being able to figure out what's an oak tree and what's a beech tree in the forest. And so now we can start to develop a better understanding of what makes the oak tree grow, what makes the beech tree grow. And so how does that play into to screening? I mean, it's one thing to say this cancer is driven by this mutation and that cancer is driven by that mutation. But screening, it seems to me, is a step before that, before you ever got lung cancer. So how can it, how is genetics or genomics, or is it, really playing into who gets screened and who doesn't get screened? Well, at this point, we don't have an answer for the non-smokers. We don't have a uh, um, guidance on, you know, which ones of those should we screen or should we not screen. Aside from the family history. Aside from the family history. Uh, we really don't have that. Now, we have an ongoing study going here at, you know, the Yale Thoracic Oncology Program uh, to look into other factors mm. uh, to, you know, get genetic fingerprinting of the tumor, but there's a very careful epidemiologic study, what kind of foods do you eat, where have you worked, uh, various things so that we can identify perhaps I'm what are risk factors, what are predispositions, what types of exposures might lead to certain types of cancers with the idea that that will tell us in the future perhaps you know how to screen certain people but maybe even better than that how to advise people you know we need to not expose people to this or to that so that we can prevent cancers in the first place. Yeah, that's awesome. So tell us again how screening works. I mean, is it a CT scan every year, every 10 years? When do you start? When do you stop? Um, tell us more about the actual screening mechanism. Okay, so the screening tool that works, uh, that we have data for, is a CT scan. It's a low-dose scan, so it's very little radiation, um, and that's what we have data for that works. Um, but it's not just a scan. So I think very often people think, oh, I go in and I get a scan and that's it. It's really a process. You, If you're screening, you're wanting to detect something early. So you can't get one scan and then say, well, then I'm good for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. You really have to get a scan every year um, that's the current system, and there seems to be pretty good data for doing that once a year and not changing that interval. Um, I th you know, but it's a, it's a complicated process of picking the right people, doing a good quality scan, interpreting that correctly. One of the problems with CT screening is that you find a lot of little things. You pick up a lot of noise. It's just background noise. But you have to sort through the background noise to figure out, you know, what's just noise and what's something that I need to maybe focus on a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And so that process of interpretation of that scan is a very important piece, and the quality of how that's done is a very important piece to making screening either effective or potentially causing more harms than it does good. 
So we have to be careful about all of these things. And it's not so simple as, oh, I just sort of walk into Walmart and get my scan and, you know, walk out and I'm done. Yeah. I mean, that whole conversation brings up the whole concept of overdiagnosis, which certainly is a, an issue that we've heard about in the breast cancer world. Do you foresee that that will be an issue in the lung cancer world? Or is this really something that is so lethal, really, in terms of, of the prognosis for lung cancer that you, you can never pick up something that is, quote, not going to have an impact on longevity? No, I think this is very true in lung cancer as well. And, uh, you know, I don't personally like the term overdiagnosis because I think it's something that's useful for epidemiologists, but I don't think it's really useful for patients or doctors that are trying to take care of patients. Mm -hmm. What it refers to, though, is that there is a spectrum of aggressiveness of cancers. There are aggressive, nasty cancers there are sort of middle-of-the-road cancers. There are relatively well-behaved cancers. And then there are cancers that are probably inconsequential, as best as we can tell, that are never, ever going to cause a problem. And I think that screening is one of those things that certainly brings out the fact that there is a spectrum of disease much more than we ever appreciated in the past. Mm -hmm. So we, as we recognize that better... I think we also have to evolve in how we approach patients, how we figure out, you know, what is a tumor that we better jump all over? What is a tumor that perhaps the intervention we need to do can be a lesser intervention, a little less invasive? We don't need to treat it that much in order to be able to cure it. And perhaps in some people, what are cancers that are likely to be inconsequential cancers that maybe we should just leave them alone and watch them and just sort of see, do they actually do anything? If they're not really doing anything, then maybe we don't need to intervene at all. Hmm. Such an interesting concept, and we're going to pick that topic up right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about lung cancer and screening with my guest, Dr. Frank Detterbeck. The American Cancer Society estimates that there will be 75,000 new cases of melanoma in the U.S. this year, with over 1,000 of these patients living in Connecticut. While melanoma accounts for only about 4% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths. Early detection is the key, and when detected early, melanoma is easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven to test innovative new treatments for melanoma. The goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence, SPORE, in Skin Cancer Grant is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Frank Detterbeck. We're talking about lung cancer and screening, and right before the break, Frank, you were 
talking about this concept of a spectrum of disease. And we, we've heard this concept in other cancers for sure, but the idea, and you were quite right that you didn't like the term overdiagnosis, I think the concept that there may be some cancers that we can simply watch is something that people are still kind of wrapping their heads around. Is that something that occurs in lung cancer? Should that occur in lung cancer? Where are we at with that? So it, it definitely occurs. There's no question about it. Uh, I think that that's something that 20 years ago, the vast majority of people would say, you know, can't see that occurring in lung cancer. But clearly, as we are doing more scans and picking up cancers early, we're realizing that there's a spectrum of disease. And some of those early, early, early cancers always stay early, early cancers without really doing anything. So they seem to be, you know, well-behaved. It might be one term or inconsequential. They, they don't seem to do anything. And so that's where getting these scans on a yearly basis to make sure that they don't do anything comes in? Well, but that's different from screening. You know, once you have something that you're paying attention to, mm-hmm. you're following that. Right. Screening is you know, just screening people that you have no idea they have anything. You have some idea they have some risk for lung cancer, but you've not identified something that you need to follow. I'm with you. But in terms of follow-up, is that follow-up with CT scan to make sure that those cancers aren't doing anything? Or is it such that you do a biopsy of that lung cancer and you know, based on its genomics or its characteristics or how it looks under a microscope, that it's one of these, quote, inconsequential Uh, lesions, and then you just say, okay, I know that that's inconsequential. You don't need anything further. No, it's really follow-up by imaging, by CT scan uh, once a year. Okay. So, you know, the other question that I wanted to ask you was this whole idea of the non-smoker and the family history and the screening guidelines that are now being expanded. So let's suppose you are 35 years old, your father who uh, smoked like a chimney his entire life got lung cancer at 75 and passed away. You now have a first degree family history of a relative who got lung cancer. You don't smoke, but you just told us before the break that that doesn't matter. You're still a candidate for screening. When should that screening start? When you're 35? Or do you wait until you're older because more lung cancers happen when you're older? What's the guidance with regards to that? Okay, well, let me just correct you a little bit to make sure that, you know, we're on the same page. Okay. Just because you have a family history doesn't mean that you are a candidate for screening. Okay. It does mean that you're at slightly higher risk than the average person of getting a lung cancer. How high is that risk? Is that risk high enough to warrant screening? Well, you have to bring in other factors like age and so forth. I see. At this point, the guidelines for screening are still age 55 or greater in a smoking history and so forth. I think we are evolving to having good risk prediction models where we can alter that and we can include other patients. The guidelines at this point don't really say that. CMS doesn't really approve screening in other groups. I don't think we're quite there yet, but I think we're pretty close. I think in another year, two years, I think we're going to have better criteria. Now, to answer your question specifically, your father had lung cancer. 
uh, you're 35, I don't think we are going to ever get to a point where we say you should be screened. Hmm. If you're age 50, 55, I think maybe then because of the age factor and how that increases your risk of developing a lung cancer, that might end up being somebody that you should screen even if you didn't smoke, for example, if you have a high enough family history. So it sounds like there's a lot going on in terms of lung cancer screening and how it's evolving. Tell us a little bit about how you think lung cancer screening is similar or different from other cancers. I mean, it sounds like, you know, certainly in breast cancer, we have some squabbles about uh, who who should be getting a mammogram and how frequently, and it sounds like lung cancer is a bit the same way. Um, tell us about the similarities and differences across cancers that you see in terms of screening. Well, I think there are a number of differences for lung cancer. So first of all, it's newer. And so, you know, we haven't been working at these details as long as in breast cancer, for example, or prostate or colon cancer. Uh, So a lot of the details we're still kind of figuring out and working on. Uh, I think that the level of understanding that physicians have about it is also not quite the same, and it's going to take some time. I think that, you know, I have to say that even for myself, you know, it has, I've, I've put a lot of time into lung cancer screening. Mm-hmm. I have been an author of a guideline for it. I've been a co-author of, you know, most of the major societies in this field that have position papers on how we should do this. I've put a lot of time into this, and yet it's taken me a long time to really develop the the insight, I think, in order to be able to advise people appropriately about it and interpret things appropriately. So I think that primary care physicians probably don't really have the tools at this point to really be able to do this as easily as they can in other cancers. I think, you know, another complexity is that uh, the risk you know, how do you pick the right patients for it? That is getting to be more complex. Now, maybe we'll get to where it's cut and dried, but that's an issue. I think that, you know, interpreting the CT scan, I told you about that, we pick up a lot of noise. How do you sift through that appropriately? How do you not overreact to noise? That's a bit more of an issue. Another issue, perhaps, is that, you know, you do a PSA level for prostate cancer. Well, you get back an answer about a PSA level, and that's it. You do a CT scan, you scan everything from you know your chin down to the bottom of your liver. And so you pick up stuff about the lungs, but you also pick up other stuff. You know, how do you sort through how to react to the other stuff? So there, I think there are differences that make it a little bit more complex. And at this point, I think you really need to have kind of an organized program that has a system for dealing with all of these things in order to be able to do it well. You know, speaking of an organized system and going back to your comment about primary care physicians and how complex everything is, one of the issues, though, that that I think about is, you know, in terms of screening, these are people who don't have cancer, um, who may be at risk of cancer, but usually they're not they're not frequenting a thoracic oncology program because they don't they don't have lung cancer. They go to their family doctor, we hope, maybe once a year for a checkup. And so is it 
do you think that it is evolving to the point or could evolve to the point with appropriate education where primary care physicians can look at the guidelines and say, are you 55 or older? Have you smoked for 30 pack years? You need a CT scan. And oh, by the way, here is the program that you should go and see. Because without that, how do they get to these organized programs? Well, I think, you know, currently, uh, certainly there are some primary care physicians that do refer patients. I think that there are, you know, people that refer themselves, just say, you know, gee, I've been a smoker or I, you know, have a family history or whatever, I'm concerned. Um, I think eventually, yes, we need to evolve in this field. And, you know, certainly I think it's something that uh, needs to evolve to be a system that can be implemented in primary care practices. I think another aspect that I didn't really touch on before, but I think that the, um, how should I put it, the uh, the psychological guilt factor of lung cancer and smoking is another issue that makes it a bit different than other cancers where you say, well, you know, why did I get breast cancer? There's nothing I've done wrong. Right. Whereas I think people that smoke, I think they tend to feel that they're to blame, and we have to get over that. Mm -hmm. Smoking is a very, it's an easy thing to start. It's a very difficult addiction to, you know, get away from. It's not just people's fault that they chose to smoke and not stop. It's not that simple. And there's a lot of good we can do for people, and in fact, the guilt that they have thinking, well, I'm smoking, so therefore I don't even deserve this. We've got to get over that. Yeah. Do you think that another potential referral source, I'm, I'm thinking about how people get to these, quote, organized programs for lung cancer screening. Your point uh, about getting over this concept of uh, the guilt uh, associated with smoking how does do smoking cessation programs kind of fit in with those organized platforms? Because I, I can see a great deal of synergy there. The people who are going to smoking cessation programs clearly um, smoke and also could benefit uh, from, from screening. Well, I, I certainly agree. We have integrated one way but not the other way. So a lung cancer screening program really needs to have a good smoking cessation program that is part of it. Mm -hmm. So people that come in for lung cancer screening that are smokers, we need to do everything we can to help them to quit. Because mm -hmm. the fact is screening can find lung cancers early, but if you can quit smoking, you can actually prevent lung cancers from even developing. So that's clearly better. Uh, and the science of helping people to quit smoking has advanced tremendously. The old-fashioned approach of let me pat you on the back and here's some nicotine gum, give it a try, really has advanced a lot more. Uh, so a sophisticated smoking cessation program needs to be part of a screening program. The other way around, you know, we haven't really connected with smoking cessation programs that you know, to just say, well, would you tell people about lung cancer screening if they don't know about it and have them thinking about it? We haven't done that. It seems to me like it would be a good idea, Frank. I think so. 
So one question I have, too, when you mentioned that, you know, lung cancer screening programs often refer people for smoking cessation. One question. Let's suppose you've you've smoked. Let's suppose you meet all of the criteria. So you're 30 pack your smoker. You're 55 and above. If you quit smoking today, could you reduce your risk of developing lung cancer even if you smoked for 30 years in the past? Yes. Like can you can you erase your previous mistake? Well, so yes and no. So if you continue to smoke, your risk of lung cancer continues to go up pretty pretty steeply. So if you can quit smoking at any age, you actually will reduce your risk of lung cancer, but you'll also reduce your risk of stroke and heart disease and all sorts of other things that take people's lives. Uh, and that really is true even at you know an older age. Um, however, generally the risk that you've, you've built up, you keep that. Nice. Uh, you don't ever completely lose it. Uh, you never go back to, you know, as if you had never smoked in the first place. Um, but since your relative risk goes down relative to continuing to smoke, it makes a big difference. Dr. Frank Detterbeck is professor of thoracic surgery, chief of thoracic surgery, and surgical director for thoracic oncology at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program. And we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.